I'm going to be starting in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. I'm going to start at verse 44. This is what it says in verse 44 of John, chapter 12. Jesus cried and said, He that believes on me believes not on me, but on him that sent me. And he that sees me sees him that sent me. I have come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me should not abide in darkness. And if any man hear my words and believe not, I don't judge him. For I came not into the world to judge it, but to save it. He that rejects me and receives not my words has one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. I love these scriptures because Jesus cried out, which means he yelled out. He was loud when he said this. And he said, he that believes on me doesn't just believe on me, but he believes on the one that actually sent me. And he says, whoever's seen me hasn't just seen me, but they've seen the one that sent me. And then he tells us the reason why he was sent. He said, I am come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me. That would be us, right? We would be included in the whosoever because we believed on him. I have come a light into the world that whosoever believes on me should not abide, live, or remain in darkness. Jesus is the light of the world. The next chapter, Jesus actually washes the disciples' feet. The light of the world, who didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to actually that through him the world might be saved. The word of God that was made flesh that come and dwelt among them, he's actually going to wash their feet in the next chapter. He takes a towel and he the Bible says he girds himself with the towel and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter says, Lord, will you wash my feet as well? And he said, you'll never wash my feet. And Jesus said, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now. But later you will. And then Peter said, well, not just my feet, then also my hands and my head. And Jesus replied to him as the one who's been made clean only needs to wash his feet. Another scripture says, Jesus speaking, you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. So they were clean because of the word that they spoke to him, but yet their feet needed to be washed. You know, Jesus wasn't talking about anything natural in John chapter 13. He wasn't giving them a natural principle of feet washing. He wasn't, because you know that if you don't wash your hair and wash your hands, they're dirty <laughs> in the natural. So he's not talking on natural lines. He's actually giving them application of the Spirit that once you've been made clean 
in the Spirit, you don't have to wash your head or your hands anymore. The only thing that needs to be washed off you is just the places that your feet have been. It's the Spirit man on the inside. He don't need a whole bath. Your feet need a bath. Our feet need a bath. Jesus is, is getting ready to actually leave. And all these men, they left everything and followed him. He's telling them about his departure. And we'll pick up in John chapter 13, verse 31. It says, Therefore, when he was gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway, right away, glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You shall seek me. And as I said unto the Jews, where I go, you cannot come. So now I say unto you, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for the other. It doesn't say that all men will know that we're disciples of Jesus because we all agree doctrinally. It doesn't. It says that all men shall know that we're disciples of Jesus because of the way that I love you and the way that you love me. But listen to Peter's response, because when I read this this morning in verse 36, I heard it a different way than I read it before. In verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. And Peter said unto him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, Will you lay down your life for my sake? I tell you the truth, I say unto you, before the rooster crows, you shall deny me. Peter, he left everything. He left his fishing business. He left his house, his wife, his family, and he invested everything in to the ministry of Jesus. And Jesus is telling Peter that I have to go and you can't come with me. Could you imagine? I've left everything to follow you. I'm willing to die for you, Jesus. Why can't I go with you? He didn't say, why can't we? He said, why can't I? <laughs> why can't I go with you? You've took me everywhere else. I'm allowed to go where nobody else has been allowed to go except for James and John. Why can't I go with you? And the response that Jesus gives to Peter isn't one that I would imagine Peter would like to hear because I wouldn't either. If I'm thinking about everything that I left and what I'm willing to go through, even death, to follow you to wherever you're going, and you tell me that I'm going to deny you, I wouldn't want to hear that, and neither did Peter. Peter knew what the cost of following Jesus, what it actually cost. He knew the persecution. He was very aware that when they wanted to kill Jesus, 
They wanted to kill them as well. The disciples always caught usually the brunt end of it. I mean, you see Peter, the Pharisees come to him, the leaders, and they ask him, doesn't your master pay tribute? Peter brings that question to Jesus. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, as soon as Peter comes into the house, he said, uh, whom do you suppose that the kings of this earth receive tribute from? From their sons or strangers? And Peter says, strangers, Lord. And he said, well, so that we don't offend them. You know the story. Go cast the hook into the sea. The first fish you pull out of the water, it's going to have a, a gold piece in its mouth. Take it and pay for you and me. Peter was aware of the cost of following Jesus. The cost of following Jesus wasn't sickness. It, it wasn't disease. It wasn't a powerless life. It was persecution. Three and a half years, he's seen all the contention with the Pharisees. He was there every single time. When Jesus told them, if Abraham was your father, then you would love me. And he goes on to tell them that they're actually children of the devil. They picked up stones to stone Jesus. Peter was there. We have a break here, and it starts into chapter 14. That's not there, which you know. That was added by the translators. So I'm going to read it without the chapter 14. I'm going to start in verse 38 of chapter 13. Then I'm going to go through chapter 14. Jesus answered Peter and said, Will you lay down your life for my sake? I tell you the truth, I say unto you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me thrice. But then listen to what he says immediately following this. And he's talking to Peter. This is what he said. You're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows once. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. He says this to Peter after he tells him, you can't come with me. <laughs> you can't come with me now, but you'll come afterwards. And Peter says, but why, Lord? I'm willing to die for you. He says, you're going to deny me three times. But don't let your heart be troubled. Peter denied and betrayed Jesus in his denial. But Jesus never betrayed Peter. We're all familiar with that scripture that says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father which is in heaven. And all of a sudden it becomes a witnessing tool of the legalistic in order to put you in bondage to a performance of works that all of a sudden you're sharing Jesus out of your concern for you. Because <laughs> you don't want Him to deny you. But in these Scriptures, there has to be something that's translated different in those other Scriptures, that if you deny Me before men, I will deny you before the angels and My Father. I will deny that I know you. Because you never knew me. 
It's the parable of the ten virgins. And what? Five of them prepared their lamps and five were foolish. And the bridegroom came at an hour that they were unaware and it was nighttime. And the foolish one said to the wise ones, give us some oil. And they said, no, unless there's not enough for me and for you. And they went away to buy oil and then the bridegroom came when they were gone. And the wise ones went with the bridegroom and the door was locked, the scripture says. And the foolish ones came and knocked, expecting to get in because they were there, but they weren't prepared. So when they came to where he was, they weren't received because he didn't know them. When we share the gospel, Christ is always at the center of it. If Jesus isn't at the center of us sharing the gospel, and if we're doing it for any other reason, our motives are wrong. If there's fear attached to anything that you're doing in the Lord or for the Lord, your motives are off. Because we work out the things that pertain to salvation. If I lack wisdom, I can ask God for it and he'll give it freely to me without finding fault. If I need wisdom, it's that simple. I ask him for it, believing that I'll receive it, not being double-minded, not thinking, well, maybe he will, maybe he won't. We're not playing the lottery with God. It's not chance. When we find a word that God highlights to us, and all of a sudden we see it like we've never seen it before, that word is meant to produce whatever it's attached to. So if you take the word, like I read in John 12, 44 and 45 and then 46, I have come into the world that whoever believes on me should not remain in darkness. So if you have darkness in your life, you take that word and you would apply it to the situation that your understanding is darkened and ask for wisdom and you're supposed to receive according to the word of God what you believed when you asked for it. It's the goodness of God. But if you're measuring what you're doing or what you've done for God in order to qualify you to receive, you're selling Jesus short. You're selling him short. You'll go back just like Peter did. You'll go back to your old life because... You weren't working like you should have for Jesus. You'll think that he was going somewhere and you can't follow him now. You have to get things right before you can follow him. That's why I think taking the break out of 13 into 14, it's the same message talking to the same person. Jesus tells Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he says, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may also be. He's telling them of a future event. We're reading it. 
But this isn't a future event to us. Jesus actually went and prepared a place for us. So right now, we're seated in heavenly places in Christ. There's been times in my life where I went through dark seasons in my life. I had personal struggles. But the word of God is true. It's the reason why he came is for the people that believe in him. You should not remain in darkness. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then David said, for you are with me. You are with me. If God be for us, the scripture says, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. It says, how shall he not with him or because of him or through him also freely give us all things? I can have an expectation to receive the goodness of God because of Jesus. I can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy because of Jesus. My frailty doesn't exist in the mind of God because what's been overlaid or what's been put into my frailty is the strength of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that lives in me. He's alive. It says that he actually makes intercession for me with groanings that can't be uttered which means when I don't know how or what to say, that the Holy Spirit, if I will allow Him, will pray the perfect will of God through me, for me. Wow. How could I be hopeless in this world? I won't remain in darkness. I won't remain down. We're all familiar with this scripture that says a righteous man falls seven times and all of a sudden we see a righteous man fall and we're shocked. <laughs> I thought he was a, a righteous man. He said he believed in God. Well, the scripture says that you're going to have times where you fall. But seven times, every single time, you'll get back up again. Amen. It's where our attention is set. And Peter happened to set his attention on what he was willing to do for Jesus. And he wasn't even paying attention to what Jesus was saying he was going to do for Peter. He missed it completely. He told him the Son of Man has to be lifted up. He'll go according to the same way that the Scriptures have already foretold. And that's why in another gospel, Peter says to him, Lord, this will never happen to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you have in mind the things of man, your own personal desires. Peter didn't understand that when Jesus gave his life, it was going to give them life. Life like they never had experienced before. That it was going to make them and take them from servants to children. See, they could serve God through the law, but you can never know God as a father through the law. You can serve him as an employee that's been hired into a company or corporation, but you could never know him as a father. You could never hear him say, 
well done. Good and faithful child, maybe good and faithful servant, because that's all you could be under the old covenant. The Jewish people had to serve the religious system in order to produce righteousness, but the righteousness that they produced always led to sacrifice. Annually, there had to be a scapegoat. Every Passover, they had to take a lamb that was spotless in remembrance of what God did, but it was always pointing to what He was going to do. The reason why God marks, especially in Jewish customs and tradition, and why they still apply today is because each one of those sacrifices, festivals, represented Christ. The Jubilee every 50 years, that even if you were sold into slavery, it was your brothers, if you were a Jew, that had to restore back to you your freedom and the property that originally belonged to your forefathers. It was a celebration year. Well, Jubilee isn't every 50 years anymore because Jesus was our freedom that purchased us out of darkness, that translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son. So now I can walk in freedom. I'm not waiting 50 years to get back what belonged to me because Jesus purchased it. That's why the preaching of the cross is foolishness to them who are perishing. But to us, it's the power of God. That God's power was made ready, available to me because of the sacrifice that took place upon that cross. Jesus poured out all his blood. He was beat, we know, 39 times before he was ever crucified. But before that, he was already close to death in the garden. The Bible says that blood was coming through his pores. Then he was crucified after that. And then to make sure that he was dead, they pierced his side because the scripture said previously in the Old Testament, which was a prophecy of Jesus, that not one of his bones shall be broken. His blood wasn't poured out for him. That's the thing. His cross wasn't for him. It was for us. He didn't go to the cross to purchase his freedom. He went to the cross to show us our value. That we're that valuable to the Father that He would give His Son, that He would die in our place so that we could live in His. It says that with one sacrifice, He put an end to all sacrifices. And with that sacrifice, that he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, removing it out of the way, nailing it to his own cross. The law was the judge that was against us. 
that would condemn us. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come into the world to judge the world. The world already has a judge. <laughs> it already has a judge. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but by me. That's the word that's going to judge people when they rejected Jesus and they stand before the Father. That's the word that's going to actually judge them. The word that said that I am the Son of God. That I am the good and faithful shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. And the sheep know me. And they hear my voice and a stranger's voice they won't follow. You've heard me say before, it doesn't say in that scripture that you will not hear the voice of the stranger. You won't follow it. It doesn't mean that you won't find yourself in darkness. It means that you won't remain there. Because He's faithful. Everything that God has has been made available to us in the person of Jesus. The enemy will always try to disqualify you. About a month ago, well, a month and a half ago, I started work. Before I started doing the job I currently do, I would take large sections of my day and I would invest it in prayer. Well, that first week, I wasn't allowed to invest it in prayer because I had to work. <laughs> so when we come into church, Mark says, you and Heather are going to be on Walter today. And I said, okay, that, that's great. We get to pray for people. Praise God. As soon as I get on the back wall there on Walter, I hear this voice of accusation inside of me. And it says, you're going to play the hypocrite. Now you're going to play the hypocrite. Because the enemy knows the way I was taught. But that's all he knows. He don't know the way, the moving of the Spirit of God. That when we understand justification, that no accuser will be able to condemn us because Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. Salvation is not the end of the line. It's actually the starting point in a race. We get saved. It's the starting point. Now we got a whole new life in God. A whole new life. And it will take the rest of our life and throughout eternity, I honestly believe, to understand what we've actually received now while we live before we die. How vast is the sum of God? I honestly, nowadays, I feel like I know nothing. There used to be a time where I felt like I knew something. But even if you take the history of what we have of God's interaction with mankind, we have a little over 6,000 years. And that's just various times in our history where God has interacted with men. We have 6,000 years of God's interaction with man. God is eternal. And we think that we know something based upon what we have here. We can know Him based upon our Bible. But to understand the vastness of God, that's why when he's questioning Job and he says, can you tell me how the clouds formed? 
Can you tell me who set the compass upon all the waters? And then he, all through chapter, I think, 39 and, and 38 and 39 in Job, he's asking Job all these questions about creation. And Job is one of the richest, wisest men of his times. And he said, I will set my hand upon my mouth. He said, I spoke in ignorance. There's so much more to God than we've ever seen. We're still understanding stuff about creation and creation testifies of God. We don't have all understanding of his creation. See, I don't have to understand everything about God because I get the opportunity to know him. I know him. And because I know him, I can actually speak good to myself. I told the man this week, he's, he's a fellow Christian and he carries condemnation sometimes. And I told him, you're a good man. And he just looked at me because I think when people say you're a good person, people say, well, automatically the scripture comes to mind. Well, why are you calling me good? There's none good but God. <laughs> See, they called him good master. What did they suppose that he was a master of? Rabbi, teacher, the law. And he said, you're looking at me, not understanding who I am. They didn't see him as God. They seen him as a good teacher, a rabbi, an instructor. Jesus asked the disciples, who do men say that I am? They said, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're raised from the dead, John the Baptist. Others say one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said what we say. You are the Christ, the Son of God. You're the Messiah. And we know that flesh and blood can't reveal that to Peter, but all of a sudden we think flesh and blood revealed it to us. You were chosen by God. The scripture says that we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that we've been set apart to manifest and show forth the glory of God. It's what we were chosen for. But if you sell yourself under a lie to believe you are what you do or you are what you've done, you will never see the glory of God manifested in your life. Because His glory comes because of Him. Not because of us. It comes because of Him. Every one of those disciples that Jesus picked, Jesus went to them. When He found... Nathaniel, he says to him, Behold, the Israelite in whose no deceit. And Nathan says, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called for you, I've seen you under the fig tree. And Nathaniel says to Jesus, Master, he says, You are the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus said, Because I saw you under the fig tree, you said that I'm the Son of God. He said, You shall see much more than this. Much more than this. See, I think under the fig tree, Nathaniel was actually talking to God. And I think when Jesus came and said, I seen you under the fig tree, what you just said to my father, he said, you have to be the one they told me. 
And Nathanael said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, come and see. <laughs> come and see. I'm going to go to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start with verse 17. And it says, For by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which received an abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. How did we receive the abundance of grace? For if sin entered into the world by one man's offense and death reigned by that one man's offense, he said, much more they which receive an abundance of grace and of the gift, the gift of righteousness. It says, we shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. See, I can reign in life because of Jesus. Because I've been crucified with Him. My old man is dead. And that's why it says in Romans here, in chapter 6, Likewise also reckon yourself dead indeed unto sin, but now alive unto God. I am alive unto God. Sin is not alive in me. Even if I sin, I'm still dead to it. Because of the abundance of grace that I've received and the gift of righteousness from the one man. That one man, Jesus, has set me free. I don't have to remain, abide, or live in darkness anymore because it's the reason why He came was to open up my understanding to who the Father is. Amen. I'm going to read out of a Ephesians here. There was a period of time where I prayed these scriptures every day, probably for over the span of two, maybe three months. Because the scripture says in Isaiah that my word won't return void to me, but it will accomplish the thing whereunto I had sent it. And reading that one day, I understood, well, how does God's word return unto him? And the revelation hit me that I am the one who's supposed to return his word. And when I do, it accomplishes the things, the reason why it was sent. It's true. See, if we never return God's word to him, then even though he spoke it, even though he set it forth, we never set it into motion. It's the Word of God that lives and remains forever, the Scripture says. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's Word won't. See, we're not just going to be reading of this interaction of history with God's interaction with these people at this time. We're going to be reading in heaven. I honestly believe there's going to be volumes of books of what we did, what God actually did through us in our generation and every generation. That there's documented history of our history with God, of our giants that we slayed. Because we had the documented history 
of David's giants that he slayed. There's always a giant in front of your promise. And you can stand and magnify the giant that's been placed in front of your promise, or you can magnify the God that has called you to face this giant because you won't face him alone. None of us do because we're born again. So when we see giants, we should think this is a wonderful time to magnify the Father. This is a wonderful time to take down the Goliath in my generation. It's a wonderful thing. Because on the other side of heaven, there's not going to be any giants. But there's going to be history of how you and I and the disciples and the people before them, how they walked with God, God's interaction with mankind. His value that he would choose to use vessels that are broken and fill them with the most precious substance in all of creation himself. We won't get to do that on the other side. So when we see giants, we should rejoice because God has made us giant slayers. And we killed the lion and the bear in our own lives before we take on other things that are opposing the nations. You're going to find a lion and a bear that comes every once in a while trying to take your sheep, your father's sheep. What belongs to your father that you've been put over? And you can let them take them because they're lions and they're bears. Or you can chase after what belongs to your father. And you can have the testimony that I slayed the lion. I slayed the bear when he tried to take what belonged to my father. And this Philistine that's opposing the nation of God's people, this giant that has brought God's people into bondage will be just like one of those to me. Why? Because David's no more of a king than you are. He has no more of the blessing of God or the favor of God on his life than we do. See, John might have written and recorded the gospel in his generation, but we take what was written and we proclaim it in ours. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That he's never changed. The Jesus in that generation could be the Jesus in this generation. All right, I said Ephesians. I'm going to start at verse 14. This is what I, I told you I prayed for a couple months. Every day. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. This is what it sounds like when I, when I pray it. That you, Father, would grant unto me according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with might by your Spirit in my inner man, that Christ would dwell in my heart by faith, that I, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height, and cause me, Father, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that I might be filled with all the fullness of who you are, now unto you, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above what I can ask or think, according to the power that is working in me. 
Unto you be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all age, world without end. That's what it looks like when we return God's word unto him. That it won't be returned to him void. It actually accomplishes the things, the reason, the purposes why it was sent. I'm going to go over here to Ephesians chapter 1. Same thing. I'm going to pray it the way that I prayed it for a couple months. I did all three of these and then one in Colossians that I prayed during that, during that time. I'm going to add my own stuff to it, but it won't subtract from the Scriptures. If you have a Bible, please be reading along so that you can see how it's personalized. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is, this is what he says. Wherefore, also, since the day that I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, since the day that I placed my faith in the Lord Jesus, and you've given me the ability to love the saints, I cease not to pray, Father, making mention of these things in my prayers, that you, Father, the Father of my Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, that you would give unto me the spirit of wisdom, and revelation in the knowledge of you, that you would open the eyes of my understanding, that they would be enlightened, that I may know what is the hope of your calling, and what the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of your power unto me because I believe, according to the working of your mighty power, the same power you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead and set them at your own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. And you have put all things under his feet and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. The first thing that is mentioned in these prayers when the apostles Paul is praying for them or you're praying for yourself is that the God of glory, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would give unto me wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you, that you would open the eyes of my understanding that I may know you. It's returning God's word back to him. It doesn't return void. Believing that God already wants to give me these things. They were already purchased for me in Christ. It's my job to lay hold. To lay hold of what belongs to me because of Jesus. It's not a job, actually. It's a privilege. My privilege to do these things. And I think of the humiliation that he was willing to go through, being pretty much stripped naked, beat in public, shamed openly. Even at the foot of the cross, you find the Pharisees mocking him, saying he saved others. Save yourself if you be the Son of God. Come down from there and show us. All the humiliation that he endured in public to strip away any doubt of the gravity of his love and the extent that he's willing to go to. When we understand how he was humiliated in public for us, it gives us boldness to be humiliated the same way. 
Who cares what people think? Jesus loved me enough to go through the humiliation of persecution even to the point of death. So what if people think I'm a fanatic? So what if every post that I post on Facebook is Jesus? So what if people exclude me because I'm religious? They'll call you when they need prayer for something, though. But don't expect to be invited to their parties. Because just like he was the light of the world, you've become the light of the world. We're a city set on a hill, and guess what? You can't be hid. (laughs) You can't be hid. The light that was lit inside of you, God lit it himself with himself. Amen. The overall theme, I believe the Lord wanted to point out today is is just the reality. Even with the life of Peter, you look at the life of Peter and you look at your life and there, there may be times where you stumble. There may be times where it feels dark. There may be times where you face giants but it's all for a purpose. Not so you'll look at yourself or how you fall or look at the giants, but that's so that you'll set your eyes on Jesus. That during these times that you would behold Him. Because I've said before, the blood of Jesus is the most precious to me when I blow it. (laughs) It is. It's not like it when I heard another pastor say when you feel like Moses and you can part the water in the bathtub. It's not that time. It's the time where I realize that I'm not sufficient in myself, neither was I ever supposed to be. It's at those times that I cry out to the Father and I say, thank you for the blood of Jesus that cleansed my conscience from dead works so that I can still serve you. It's my honor. It's my privilege. You know me by name. You formed me in my mother's womb. Before any of my members, my body parts ever came to be, they were already written in your book. That's every one of us. We're that important in this generation that out of all generation, God has chosen to place you in this one. Okay, I'm going to pray and then we'll dismiss. So. I just want to thank you, Father. I want to thank you that you've already made us more than conquerors through Christ. We thank you that we choose to put our affection and attention on your finished work, which has already been completed in us and for us. We thank you that we take possession of our inheritance today. We thank you that all the lies of deceit would be stripped from the hearts of any believer who listens to this and every believer in this place. And even unbelievers would be compelled to your goodness because it was manifested to us through Jesus. I just want to thank you, Father. I want to thank you that you would choose to use me for anything. I want to thank you that you've made us ambassadors, that every person here, that they're an ambassador of the kingdom of God. Even if they're not called to an outreach or an outside voice, that they're ambassadors of who you are in their own families and among their own friends. We thank you, Father, that you begin just to manifest your goodness through every vessel here. Father, even if it feels broken, I thank you, Father, that 
there's no vessel that's been broken to the point where it can't be filled because you're the fixer of anything that's ever been broken. We thank you that our ability to destroy is not greater than your ability to restore. And I thank you, Father, that we're in a season where restoration is coming to your body globally like never before. I want to thank you that the gift of prophecy is functioning in your church like never before. I want to thank you that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and interpretation of tongues like never before is functioning in your body. I want to thank you that these gifts function as we turn our focus and set our complete affection upon you. We thank you, Father, that as you become the object of affection, I want to thank you that Jesus is magnified. I want to thank you that the gifts begin to function in your body like they were always intended to. We just thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.